Hi, I'm Ali Maldro, the host of A Public Affair on Tuesdays. You can listen to this show any day of the week, any hour of the day on the WORT smartphone app or on wortfm.org. If you love what you hear, click that donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Good afternoon, Madison. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM. Madison, I'm your host, Ali Muldrow. This is a public affair. And today we're going to have a pretty awesome conversation. But before we do, just big shout out to our producer, our engineer, our everything. She helped me with my computer, Jade, holding it down. Like, literally, we just, I love Jade so much, y'all. So... I want to start off the day by saying anybody who wants to call in and join this conversation should. And the number is 608-256-2001. Press 9 and we'll patch you through. And you know who will patch you through? Jade. And so you might want to say, yo, Jade, we love you. Thank you so, so much. Okay, on to what we're doing here today. Last Monday marked the 100th day of striking for the Writers Guild of America Union. Among their demands are increase to minimum compensation, a limit on the use of mini rooms and regulation to you to use of materials produced by artificial intelligence before i introduce our guest today let's hear some of the voices from the first hundred days we are all in this together they are taking a new model and acting like Oh, we don't know if this thing's going to make any money. Well, somebody's making money. And all that the WGA is asking for is a tiny percentage. I want a world in which no AI writes scripts or attempts to. I want a world in which we are fairly compensated for the things that we put up on streaming. We the power. What kind of power? Union power. We are fighting for the survival of our profession. Um, this is this is the, the line in the sand right now. I haven't been on a set. I haven't been on a set of an episode that I produced. What felt to me was an anomaly has become the norm. And we're doing a bad job of training the next generation of storytellers because they don't have the experience that lets them do that job as best as they can. It's much harder today for young writers, very difficult for them to even get their foot in the door. That's why I write, to send down the freight elevator and bring as many Latino, Latina, Latinx writers as I can with me. But what am I bringing them into? A place where they can't make a fair living? On the front lines here, um, hoping to make a better future for the writers behind me. There are no heroes without you. There are no villains without you. There is no imagination brought to life. Without you, there is nothing but static. I don't think the bosses knew what they were up against when they failed to listen to us. I don't think the bosses knew what they were up against when they failed to listen to you either. That was the WGA video, 100 Days Strong. The latest update from unions negotiations is that they received counterproposals on Friday from AMPTP, the trade association that represents over 350 American television and film production companies. WGA says they will respond this week. Joining us to talk about the strike and the changes to the film and television industry lead le- that led to the strike is writer and director Kristen Holodeck. Kristen, how are you doing today? Welcome to the show. Um, fabulous, thank you. It's so nice of you to join us on a public affair here on WORT 89.9 FM. Uh, you teach uh, writing. You teach about what, what this strike means for writers. Talk to us a little bit about what it's been like for you uh, to follow the strike um, and, and see kind of what, what folks are, are fighting for. It's been, like, on the one hand, a little bit heartbreaking and on the other hand, a little bit hopeful. Mm. Um, Because, you know, I sort of knew it was bad, but didn't really know how bad it was. Um, And as people have been striking, they've been telling their own stories about the details of what their experiences are as writers. And it's eye opening. And and so it 
like I sort of think about what am I getting my students into? What am I getting myself into? What, like, I firmly believe that no matter what you do in life, being a good writer will help you. So I'm, I'm not, I wouldn't ever stop teaching my students how to write and how to tell stories because a commercial is a one minute movie. Um, but, but now I sort of, like, I think about the students who I sent out to LA two or three years ago who were like, yeah, I want to be a writer. And, and I'm sort of looking at these details thinking, oh God, what did I just do? Mm. Um, but, but on the other hand, I also find the strike really hopeful because something is going to change. And I don't know what the details are, but it can't not change. The status quo won't remain when this is done. Um, so I don't know what the future is going to be, uh, but but it'll be something. Because if if it doesn't change, there's no job to go back to. Like the writers aren't going to come off the line. I think that that's a really important thing to talk about is the idea that there's no job to to go back to. Um, and I think about this every time I go to like my local grocery store um, because it's a little it's a tiny little spot on the east side, um, and they invested hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, in automated checkout, right, in self-checkout. I'm like, you wouldn't pay an employee to do this work, but you will invest a lot of money in machinery and equipment to do this work and the upkeep of that machinery and equipment. One of the major arguments or debates um, that's happening as as part of this writer's strike uh, is is about whether or not writers are going to be replaced by by AI. We saw the first um, AI impersonation of Drake recently. So there's a whole song that is a Drake song with Drake's voice that Drake didn't create at all. Um, uh-huh. So so talk to us a little bit about kind of the intellectual property component of this um, and and the real threat that is AI replacing writers. Well, I think very much, particularly for the actor's side, um, the intellectual property component and the, the like right to your likeness, um, I think that side of this debate is going to get settled in the courts, not in the strikes. Mm-hmm. Because, like, Drake needs to sue. <laughs> um, and, and there's a little bit of like, well, it was parody, it was satire, like, eh, maybe this one was. Um, maybe. <laughs> I mean, they'll argue it anyway. Um, but, but I think, you know, how do actors not get replaced by AI? You sue to protect your likeness. Um, well, how do any but of how us do writers not... not get replaced by AI? Mm-hmm. Like, and that's like, that is a big part of the strike is, um, the, the, the writers guild wants to say the first author on any film you make is a human and because what they fear is the producers are going to go to whatever ai tool of the day is and say give me a holiday rom-com with a girl from the big city who is an ad executive and a guy from the country who is a christmas tree farmer and Make sure there's these three points and follow the structure of a holiday rom-com, go. And in about 15 seconds, there will be a 90-page script. And it will stink. Um, it, it will be bland. It will be derivative. It will be boring. It will have no voice and no soul. But it will exist. And so the fear is the producers are going to do that and then turn to a writer and say, punch this up for me. And only pay for the punch-up, which is half of what you would pay for an original script. Hmm. Um, that's like that's the fear. Not that AI could do a better job because it can't, but that the producers will let it do a bad job and use it to save half the money. Well, and I think the there's another a- aspect of that conversation, which is, because um, it's not that people don't write bad scripts, 
It's not that we all haven't seen bad movies made by people. And if the question is like bad movies, who makes them? I I don't know. Like, I I don't know. Like that can be people that can be machines, whatever. And, And I think people have the right to make bad art. But I I think if AI can write a script, it's because AI has source material to use that. We have taught AI. So how are we compensating people for the fact that AI is mimicking their skill set, is mimicking them as writers? Um, And so I don't have to pay you because I can train AI to absorb your cadence, your language, your 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 skills um, and and subvert uh, paying you by investing in artificial intelligence. Can you can you talk a little bit about kind of the the concern that even if you're using AI, you're still using writers, you're just not paying right. them for their influence on AI? What what got used to teach the AI? Um, I, the, the problem I think it is going to end up being it'll be harder to like prove mm. you know, sort of Drake can go to court and say that's me that's meant to be me you didn't ask me so no you can't do it and it's clear but Aaron Sorkin would have a harder time saying you did a script in my style like, he can't copyright his style. I can try to write an Aaron Sorkin script. I won't be Aaron Sorkin, but I can try. And that's not disallowed. And I learned it by watching all of his stuff and reading all of his stuff. Oh, that's such so an incredible point. That's going to be a harder, like, I'm not, I'm not saying I think it's right. I'm saying it's going to be so much harder to, to, like, legislate and... Well, and, level. and I think for those of us who are like highly imaginative people, there is some curiosity because, yeah, I don't want somebody to steal my voice or write for me um, right now while I am alive and well. But am I curious about what it would look like if you asked AI what August Wilson's next project would have been? Yeah, I am. I got I have to admit, like, there is a part of me that's like, yeah, I want to know what Dr. Seuss's next book would be, according to the calculations of this computer. Like, I'm, I'm curious about that. I can't say I wouldn't read that or be interested in that. Um, we're talking about the advancement of of technology and Hollywood has told a lot of stories about what the advancement of technology looks like, who gets replaced by technology, who doesn't. Um, the The conversation about wages and America's relationship to paying people for their art, for their work, um, there's a long history there. People want to be making a living wage. What does that look like for a writer? What does it look like for writers and artists to make a living wage in in Hollywood or in the production of films and movies? Well, or- they used to. Um, in the in the network era, you could have a decent middle class life as a writer. Um, and you know, nobody's ever going to know your name. You're not going to be Shonda Rhimes, but you could buy a house and have health insurance and send your kids to school and, you know, live a pretty normal life. Um, because you knew you had, you knew if you got a job, I got on this show, particularly in like the eighties, nineties, even O's, um, that's going to be a network show is going to be 22 episodes. There's going to be, a dozen people in the room and you're going to be working for half the year or more. And, and so you've got sort of a guaranteed minimum of those 22 weeks, 25 weeks, whatever it ends up being. And then if you are good enough that you have become primary author on an episode, then you get paid for that episode and a, a fairly healthy amount because you're only working half the year and it's going to cover a whole year. Like it feels in much the same way that people will say as a professor, well, you get the summer off. Like mm-hmm. A, no. And B, my salary has to cover that. It's not like I can get another job. Um, so the writers are the same way. They're working. They were at that point working half the year. They needed to be earning a whole year's worth of salary in that half year because they're spending the second half of the year trying to get the next job. Mm-hmm. Um, 
or not allowed to try to get the next job because they're waiting to see if they get another season. Yeah. And they, they aren't allowed to look until they get a thumbs up or thumbs down on the next season. So why can't studios afford to pay writers as well nowadays <laughs> as they could in the 90s and the 80s? Break it down for us. Um, well, I, I mean, I think they can. Um, uh, I mean, they certainly have no trouble paying their CEOs. Uh, so... <laughs> I'm not sure can't is the is the word I would so use. Maybe, maybe, so maybe maybe let's think about money. that. Why 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 was it easier to value a writer's room? Um and it, it, in part is that just the reality of our move towards streaming, our 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 move towards, you know, kind of a, yes. a experiencing media differently. What what has diminished the value of of writers in the eyes of executives? Well, there's more executives now. Mm. Right. So in the 80s and 90s, it was what four broadcast channels that were routinely and then some basic cable. And like it was a much more limited number of executives. And they were all people who came up through media. They were media only people. And, you know, now they're tech companies. Mm. You know, Apple and Amazon, like, like a fr- it, it kind of boggles my mind because on the one hand, Amazon doesn't need their shows to make money. They're making so much money off of everything else. They could easily pay everybody really well and still be making so much money. Um, but, but it changes the dynamic. And, and even Netflix, which is not Amazon or Apple selling products, it is still in a lot of ways a tech company um, and, and a shareholder-driven company um, because, because it wasn't ads. Like, in the early days, there was this relationship between the people making the shows, the advertisers and the companies buying ads, and then the the, you know, like the distributors and the creators and the ad people. And it was all of this sort of symbiotic, if I do well, you do well, we all do well thing. And, and that was how the industry got invented, particularly television in the 50s, um, probably as a holdover from radio. <laughs> uh, and, and so that all sort of bubbled along and worked for 50, 60 years. And then you know, people talk about disruption and disruption isn't bad. I don't want to say disruption is bad, but, but it's disruptive, right? So we're living in this moment of changing technology and changing, like, Netflix isn't paying for its shows by, or wasn't paying for its shows by making ads. Netflix was paying for its shows by selling its idea to shareholders, and so then the shareholders become the most important thing. And any way to make your product more cheaply so that your shareholders make more money is success. I thought that Netflix was paying for their shows with this very expensive subscription. Every time I see how much the Netflix subscription costs, I'm like, what am I doing? Why am I investing this much in Netflix? Um Uh You know, and I'm old enough that I'm like, I'm not sharing an account with my mom anymore. But thank you for those days, Julie Muldrow. Um, If you're just tuning in, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Ali Muldrow. And today we're talking about the WGA writer strike with Chris. I'm like, I have to look at the the other version of your name, Holodeck, um, who is a, a professor and a writer and a director and is currently uh, the associate professor of digital media at Marquette. Prior to that, she spent 15 years creating productions for clients such as the Smithsonian Institute, the Kennedy Center, and for the performing arts. She has also written and directed a dozen short films, written two feature scripts, one of which was produced last summer and is currently finishing post-production right now. Chris, 
I greatly appreciate kind of your your breadth of knowledge and understanding around this. This is also a conversation about union negotiations and and the writers union. And I don't think we don't usually associate unions with artists. We think of artists as folks who work um, independently. When we think of unions, we think of the trades, we think of educators, we think of police, um, we think of government employees for the most part. Talk a little bit about the importance of of the the labor movement that is happening for writers and how you know you've observed and fit into that conversation. Um, yeah, like if you look at the history of Hollywood, if it weren't for unions, we'd all be dead. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of joking, but I'm actually very much not uh, because. <laughs> Well, because the the producers... I don't think you're joking. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, Unions like, save lives. You heard it here yeah. on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Unions create safe work environments. Talk to us about right. what that means for Hollywood and the movie industry. Right. I mean, it like, as it is, a, a typical film set day is a minimum of 12 hours. And that's a lot and it's physically demanding for a lot of the folks on set and when you didn't have union demands like saying 12 hours max and after that you have to pay us double and after that you have to pay and after 16 you have to like just to try to keep it they'd be working 24 hours straight and that's when you get in a car crash on your way home and die (laughs) like and that's where the labor movement started in Hollywood in the 30s, I suppose, like back when. And and we can see it that if we weren't still actively fighting and all of us, the writers union and the actors union and IATSE and which is the, the crafts and the guilds, so the camera and the lighting and the sound folks, those are all IATSE. Um, like if we if we weren't all holding together, we would be getting in car crashes on the way home. Um, and I mean, it's almost ironic in that one of the things that the writers are striking for is the right to be on set. Um, but then, but not for, but not for twenty four straight hours, please, um, because because the way for television the way you move up the ranks is like the pinnacle of being a TV writer is being a showrunner. But being a showrunner is being a producer. So it's your idea, it's your vision beginning to end. So you are you are on set as a showrunner. You're, you're making a hiring decision. You're running things. If you have never been on set until you are a showrunner, how in the world are you going to be good at that? And so part of this whole, the thing about the mini rooms and and the length of time um, has to do with younger writers and even mid-tier writers being kept on the payroll long enough that when their episode is shooting, they are on set. So when like, oh shoot, we couldn't get this location. So now it needs to happen in a coffee shop instead of the lobby of the whatever, quick rewrite this scene to make it make sense in the new location. You want the writer of the episode there to do that. Or if the actor says, this line doesn't make sense to me, can I change it to that? They can say, sure, or, no, because if you change it to that, it's going to mess something up three episodes later. Mm-hmm. Because I was in the writer's room, I know that. Um, so those are the, the, the things, the advantages to the production of having writers on set. Um, the advantage to the writer is you're on set. You're seeing how it works. You're seeing what everybody's doing. There's a hundred people on a set. I mean, think about the credits. And do you know what those people do? No, of course you don't. And neither do the writers until they've been there. Hmm. You don't magically know it. Um, so 
That's such an interesting thing to think about because there's these conversations happening about remote work right now. And what we're not talking about in that conversation around remote work is really what does it mean to be siloed within your job, right? Um, And isolated within the context of your job. And what does that do to the power dynamic between you and the people that you're working for, working with? So I really appreciate you talking, you naming that one of their demands is access to being on set, access to working in person, um, which I think is is interesting because of that conversation about what it means to remote work. What does it mean? You know, we 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 have experimented now with can you replace in-person experiences with virtual experiences? And I think after three year experience, um, after, you know, homeschooling my children via Zoom. No, it's not going to work. We're not going to that is not going to be how we do things. We're going to have to hang out with each other from time to time in person. And that being said, I think it's a good way, Chris, to talk about what are the other demands? People want to get paid a living wage. What does that mean? People want to be have access to being on site. You just gave us a breakdown of why. What are the other things that folks are going to strike until they accomplish? Um, well, so the, the big pretty much applies to everybody demand is the AI demand. Okay. Um, but then, but then you get into there's sort of three groups of writers in the current strike. There's the TV writers, which is a lot of what we've been talking about so far. There's feature script writers, and then there's what they what they refer to as Appendix A writers, and it makes me want to go see what the minimum basic agreement looks like that a whole clump of writers got into an appendix. Um, but those are the folks who are the like comedy variety writers. So people writing for Jimmy Kimmel and Stephen Colbert and for The Daily Show and for um, the Emmys. And all the shows all those that those we miss right now so much. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, so the, like AI affects all of those. Um, residuals, which is another of the big points, affects the comedy variety writers and the TV writers more than the feature writers. And what what that's about, in a nutshell. Um, so so back in the day, you got paid for twenty two weeks. You got paid for your individual episode. Every time your episode aired again, you got paid. Like so, it, I'm going to use easy math. Um, if I got paid $10,000 for the first time my episode aired, um, which is less than the minimum, but it's just easy math because I'm a writer. Um, then when it, the first time it reran, I would get 5,000. And then the next time it reran, I would get 2,500 and the, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but, but that's why it was like, it was the dream to get into syndication. Because, you know, eventually any individual rerunning wasn't going to be a lot of money. But if you think about, well, when I, so when I was a kid, I'm going to date myself. I used to watch MASH every day at 530. MASH was on my local TV station. So those writers who wrote it in the 70s were getting checks quarterly and MASH was rerunning like all all over the, like those guys did well. Um, and you know, like by the end, any individual rerunning might have been a hundred bucks, but it was rerunning all over the place. So they made a really nice living off of that. So I love that you said those guys did well because one of the things that I think has been impacting the way I look at this is I've been hearing for years that Hollywood's writer rooms are more diverse, that there are more women, that there's an active effort to include more people um, of color and more more people who have expansive relationships with gender and sexuality. And we are having a more diverse space and now we don't want to pay those people. Um, I just think that's really interesting. Surprise. So the MASH um, guys did really well for themselves and we want kind of a return right. to that. I want to yeah. ask a question about like the format. Yeah, if you have a, an episode of Friends and it airs at 7 p.m. on Thursday, cool. Um, and then it comes back on on TNT 78,000 times and you get paid every time. Good for Jennifer Aniston. Um, but then if you're streaming 
And it's like, well, I don't know when this is re-aired. Like, it's re-aired when the individual decides to watch it. Right. It doesn't re-air, right? And Mm -hmm. so that's, like, that's the disruption of streaming that is, like, it isn't inherently bad that the system got disrupted. It's just that all of our contracts and agreements were based on the old system, and the old system doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Because if, if... a streamer makes your thing, there is no residual. There is no rerunning. It is there, done. And so, like, I, I was reading something yesterday, I think, um, somebody who wrote for Suits. And when it was airing on network, they were getting $3,000 every time it reran. And now it's on netflix it's on one of the streamers i don't know which one but it's on one of the streamers and is like a huge hit got thousands and thousands and thousands of views and she got two hundred dollars ouch yeah right so like (laughs) um hello uh so so that's and and comedy variety writers like I was reading some of their stories and you know they would write on a show for broadcast even like some dumb minor cable outlet and do the exact same show for a streamer and make like 20% of what they made on, you know tw- on the biggest streamer paid them 20% of what they made from the smallest cable outlet. Oof. Oof. Um so that has to change. And that and that's where I say like the writers aren't going to stop. Because if streaming is the future and and you're only getting paid 20% of what you got paid 5 years ago, there's no job to go back to. Mm. So, um and then the third set of folks are the feature writers who have a sort of different set of issues. Um and the biggest issues for the feature writers are, um, they call them steps, right? So every time you ask for a rewrite, it's another step. I, I don't know why, it just is. Um, and so the, the feature writers want a guarantee of multiple steps. So, and, and really just two, <laughs> um, because what happens now is a producer comes to you and like, I've got scripts. I would love to sell my scripts. Uh, so a producer comes to me and says, hey, we love your new script. We want to buy it. Um, we have some notes. Okay. You get the notes. You polish it up. You give it to them. We have some more notes. And we're not going to turn this in. If it's a single step deal, they only get, you only sort of get one chance to get it right. And so... And you don't get paid until it becomes the official draft. And so the producers will just keep rewriting, just keep asking for rewrites, keep asking for rewrites, keep asking for rewrites until, okay, this is the official draft. And that can drag on for more than a year. Um, And so then suddenly, like, even if you get more than the minimum, that amount, which seems like a healthy amount, if you tell people like, oh, I sold my, like, I think the minimum is like $40,000. But even if like, oh, I sold my, I sold my script for $100,000. But if it took me two years to write it before I sold it, and then another year of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting, that's not $100,000 a year. That's $100,000 over three years. Um, and so, and, and then it might take them months to pay you. So... So for the feature writers, it's, we want multi-step deals because then you can turn in an official draft and get paid for that step and get paid to do the rewrites. Um, and they want weekly pay. So like, okay, if you're gonna do a contract with me for six months for however much to, to work on this script with you, then you're gonna divide that by the number of weeks and pay me weekly. It lets people know when the money's coming so that they can just budget their lives and it gives the producers an incentive to stop nickel and diming the revisions and get it done 
because then after the six months, like, nope, I've, our contract has run out. That is the official draft. Yeah, you can either stop revising or you can pay me more for the pay additional labor. Um, right. Sounds reasonable to me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. This is a public affair. I'm Ali Muldrow. And today we're talking about the WGA writer's strike with Chris Holodeck. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 608-256-2001, press 9. And then Jade, who is our engineer, our producer, she's over there playing clips, like just bringing this show together. We'll patch you through if you want to say, like, we love you, Jade. You're the best What when you call in to talk to us about this strike. Um, I fully support you in doing that. Chris, I think it is hard for a lot of us to imagine doing work and getting paid for it later like not many people have a job where it's like I showed up and I fixed the toilet at so-and-so's house because I'm a plumber I don't get paid every time it flushes most of us feel like you you do a job you move on to the the next uh job is there something that we're missing about why writers and artists um you know, get to be paid in the long run for work they've already done? Well, the best way I think to think about it is sharing and success. Mm. So if I write a show and I'm not good and it airs once, but everybody hates it, then it never airs again and I don't get any more money. But if I write a show and I'm Aaron Sorkin and everybody loves it and it plays everywhere over and over and over and over and the producers are selling it to people over and over and over and over so every time it re-airs somebody is paying the producers to show it the writers want their little slice of that so it's more like so it's hard because it's ephemeral Mm -hmm. um but it's more like buying a book every time you buy a book the author should get a cut of it not just the publisher yeah and it's the same book but if five people buy the book versus 500 people buying the book a book that sells to 500 people, the author should make more money over. Oh, I completely appreciate the the way you, you brought that to life. Um, I think that's such a good example of like, why is this different? How does this work different than, than other bodies of work or other jobs? Um, and I also just really appreciate you kind of outlining these are the demands and this is why they make sense. Um, and this is why people have been striking for over 100 days. And this is this is a long and significant strike that has had, you know, a major impact on all of us, on what we consume, on our media, on our news, on on how, you know, relevant the voices um, that we're listening to right now are. There is the conversation about replacing scripted television with scripted television created by AI. There's also the conversation about less scripted television. Like, do people just want to watch more reality TV? Do people even want to watch shows? Do they just want to watch, like, clips of other kids doing stuff on YouTube or clips of other kids doing stuff on TikTok? Um there's multiple fronts to really think about, like, what is the future of, of storytelling? You gave us the, the demands of the folks who are striking. Can you talk a little bit about the resistance of, to those demands um, from the, the executives or leadership um, that, that folks are petitioning their demands to? What, what is getting in the way of, of coming to an agreement, of, of finding compromise, um, of, of getting, you know, late night comedy back on the air? I know, right? I, I, I'm Stephen Colbert. 
I know. I know. It's been hard times. There's a lot happening in the world. There's like a huge ball of fire in the ocean right now. And there is nobody making that funny. It's just terrifying. Right. So how do we... I, I, I want them back. I want yeah, them back. How do we, how do we get them like, back? And what's, what is stopping... Um, his writers all live in New York City. It is a very expensive place to live. Mm. I want them back, but I want them paid so that they can afford their rent. Yeah. And I'm willing to wait. Um, it, uh, I mean, let me try to not just be facetious and say greed, because that's what my heart you says. But, I, but it's not just is, that. We don't talk about greed enough in our society. Go <laughs> ahead and name that. Like, people are greedy and evil and would rather... You know, somebody has to live in a hallway uh, then then make sure that people are compensated fairly that that yeah. you are not wrong for that answer. I support you in saying greed are I, I know that no studio has come out and said we're too greedy to pay y'all tough. Um, so what are what are studios saying is the reason why they can't meet these demands? Well, I think. I think they built an empire on sand and the sand started slipping away and now they're all scared. Mm. Um, Because, you know, sort of love or hate commercial television, it worked. Because it worked for 60 years. And there were plenty of people making a lot of money and the money was shared around. But, you know, like... Those media companies, ABC, NBC, CBS. Yeah, but the, the argument you just made could be made for slavery. Like, hate it or hate it or sure, love right. it, uh, it worked for hundreds of years. Our economy is built on it. Some people benefited hugely. Uh, something right. lasting a long time doesn't mean it's good. Doesn't, doesn't mean it's good. But it was more stable than, than the current system. And people were better paid then. Um, the... the disruptors came in and said, I think I can do this differently. But they didn't actually, like, and this is, I'm projecting now because I've never spoken to any of these people. <laughs> um, but I, it doesn't seem like they had a plan um, for the sustainability of it. Because, like, the early Netflix model, it, it was all of our subscription fees. And, but they were spending, like, early on, I remember kind of watching this happen and thinking these big show they're spending a lot of money on these big shows though um like Orange is the New Black I read a really interesting article by somebody who was on Orange is the New Black who was like we who was an actor mm-hmm. uh who said we got paid peanuts and it was hugely successful and we got none of it um and Every every non-major character had a day job. They had to work two jobs while they were on the biggest show on Netflix. And it's almost ironic that you would exploit and poorly pay a group of people who are pretending to be prisoners. I mean, it's almost like, are you trying to create kind of lived experience that aligns with the character? (laughs) Like, what are we doing here, Netflix? Um, But it's method acting. Yeah, yeah, but it's definitely not that that Netflix can't afford to pay people well. Like, we as as a culture have to have a conversation about, like, why we would rather invest in technology um, than than compensate people? Why why we are comfortable with people working themselves to death or having two to three jobs to survive when they have a, a meaningful job or a job um, that that you know is hugely profitable for other people? Right. Somebody's making a profit, so share it around a little bit. So I mean, I do think greed, um, but I also think like. When they started, they didn't know if they were going to be big or not. And so they convinced people to like, well, give us this contract cycle to not pay you much because we don't know if this is going to work or not. And so the whole thing might just go away. And the guilds were like, all right, fine. This is new. We don't know what's going to happen. Okay. But then, man, you say okay once. You give them an inch, they take a mile. And, and it was, I mean, true enough, nobody quite knew what was going to happen. And in a way, we still don't know what's going to happen, because I think you're absolutely right about YouTube and TikTok and Instagram. And, like, 
I, I will ask my students, um, what did you, it, it, you know, like, what did you watch this summer? What did you watch over, over break? What did you like enough to recommend? Just to kind of get us all talking about, you know, what we're consuming and what kinds of things we like and what kinds of things we might want to make. And inevitably, some of them are coming back with, you know, YouTube influencers and TikTok influencers. And I'm just sort of like, really? Because I'll, I'll like go and watch what they recommended and think, really? Really? This is entertaining you? All right. Um, so, you know, but like when the boomers all die off and I'm old and Gen Z is the people making media, it might be all that. And if that's what they want and they're making it for themselves and they're paying each other to make it, okay, I guess. It's not going to entertain me, but I'm not the target audience, so fine. I mean, I I hope not. I'm like, I hope. <laughs> I mean, I, me too. Or, or at least I hope that there's a certain level of, of quality control because I think the stories we tell are hugely influential. Hollywood has yes. had a, a major influence on what we think is beautiful, on what we think is fair, on what we think is healthy, um, and and not always in, in a good way. And so I think there is, I think that's part of the, the reason why young people turn to TikTok and to Instagram is because there's an alternative narrative about who is important in those spaces. You think about somebody like Issa Rae, who is kind of one of one of the forces to be reckoned with in terms of, of writing and producing great television, great content. She started with Awkward Black Girl. And for me, as a young person seeing her, um, I thought, oh, finally, like a black woman gets to be in charge of how a story about black women um, is is told and and gets to kind of defy uh, stereotypes in in terms of the narrative. I think there's a lot to be gained and and there are things to be lost right now. Um, and so that that's part of what makes this conversation so fun to get to have with you, Chris. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Ali Maldro, and today we're talking about the WG a writer's strike with Chris, who is a writer, director, professor. Um, if you have questions about the show, please give us a call at 608-256-2001. Shout out to our team today, receptionist Steve, engineer, producer Jade, and our news director, Sholly. Um, those folks are the reason that we get to be here on WORT, having this incredible conversation with Professor Chris. Chris, I think... You you are a writer and a director. Are you personally impacted by this strike? What does this mean for you? How do you stand in solidarity with the people who are striking? Um, or you know, being in Milwaukee, is it are are you is your world not not necessarily tethered to theirs? Um, it is not necessarily tethered to theirs yet. Um, but I am aspiring. Uh, I, I like the film that we shot last summer was an indie film. I wrote it and directed it. I scrounged together some money. It was non-union. It was a lot of students um, and a handful of professionals so that the students had pros to work under and we got it done. Um, and so working in that milieu, the strikes don't matter. Um, I will probably sit on it when we finish it until after the strikes are over before I try to sell it because it, the, the, one of the things that the writers in particular have been talking about is drying up the pipeline. If, if the streamers think they're going to get contact, content without the writers, then they can, they can wait out longer. So I, I won't be attempting to sell it until after the strike is over but honestly there's a fairly decent odds that the strike will be over before i'm done anyway chris i um, really appreciate that and that feels a little bit like breaking news what makes you think that the strike will be over anytime soon it's been a hundred days um I, what, well that's more when, about when is much, when is this going to be done <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate um, that that was more about your process than theirs thank you um but i mean they are talking again. We don't know what they're saying yet, but they did at least have a meeting. Um, I don't think it's going to be quick. 
Um, but I do think with the actors out as well, there's way more pressure on the producers um, because because for a while, and they had they had seen the strike coming and had bought up as many scripts as they could before the strike came, so that they had a stockpile. And as long as the actors weren't striking, they could keep making stuff. Um, but now with the actors out, they can't do anything. Um, and so I feel like you know, the reason they're talking to us at all now is because of the added pressure of the actors being out. We are stronger together. Um, I, I mean, I think it'll be at least another month, but I don't think the producers can afford to hit the end of the year and still have nothing new coming. Because, you know, at what point do we all start, like, if there's nothing new, the, none of the guilds have asked for boycotts, but if there's nothing new, there's no point paying my Netflix subscription, right? Yeah. So there will come a time when people are just like, I've, I've seen all the things I wanted to see, I'm going to cancel until you guys finish, because what's the point? Um, And they would like to have this resolved before that happens. So that is a great note to kind of end on. What is the role of the consumer? Should people be boycotting and supporting this strike by canceling their their Netflix subscription, by canceling their their Prime membership? How do people get involved and support the strike? Um, So far, none of the guilds have asked for a boycott. So, and, and so I think don't unless there's nothing you want to see and then sure go ahead um it there could come a time when the guilds are like okay if this is your thing we're going to start calling for a boycott it'll make it'll be more impactful if everybody does it at once yeah um so i think i i mean i have no idea but i suspect that's why they're kind of sitting on the boycott option um there is a um oh I should have looked this up to have it handy for you. There's a there's a nonprofit organization that people can donate to that is giving money to to striking actors, striking writers, but also it's like it's a community fund because it's because with the productions shut down, it's not just the writers and actors out of work. It's they are makeup people and the lighting people and the camera people and the catering people and the just a whole plethora of folks in financial difficulty right now and so there is i don't want to say it because i'll say it wrong um but there there is a fund for for the entertainment community that people can donate to to help keep folks rent paid see if you support artists if you support unions if you support labor you should maybe consider how you can support this strike chris i cannot thank you enough for joining us for everything you had to say um thank you for for being a part of our our show today on a public affair on wort 89.9 fm madison i'm your host ali Maldro. this is a public affair i'll see y'all next week I will not climb into your telephone tree And hell no, you cannot put me on hold It's the same recorded message you've been singing all along Keep handing us the Bible while you're walking off with all the gold The bureaucratic office sends you merry-go-rounding By the KKK police, the streets by